Welcome back to another um, edition of Mormon Expression. I'm your host, uh, John Larson. Thank you. We're here live in the fabulous studio in uh, downtown Salt Lake City, as we do on most Tuesdays. So if you're ever in town, come uh, check us out. Always cool people here and a good time to be had by all, including Folger's decaf coffee in my mug. And speaking of decaf, here is um, uh, Lindsay next to me. Welcome back, Lindsay. Thank you. I like that I'm getting a nickname now. That's the, awesome. <laughs> well, well, that's, decaf in the house. What's up? You, you, Lindsay, somebody, they, there was an ask that we, a great suggestion that we introduce the panelists. Um, so um, I'll give your introduction. Lindsay is in general provocateur. Wait, What? <laughs> Um, that sounds really seedy. A, a, I hope a, a it is. Tr- a troublemaker. Lindsay is the, the church's troublemaker these days. You know, they have a dossier on you, I've been told. I have been told that as well. Lindsay, um, welcome back. Lindsay, of course, runs the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast and blogs at Feminist Mormon Housewives under the name Winter Buzz. Winter Buzz. Yes, Winter Buzz. Also joining us is Terry tonight. Terry, welcome. This is your first time, right? This is my first time. But you've listened before. I have listened. I'm worried. Sometimes Lindsay recruits people, and I... Oh, no. I, I don't... Don't finish that sentence. I'm not going to go there, Lindsay. I, I, that, I don't know if they've listened, so I want to make sure everybody knows what they're in for. Yes. I've listened. Know what I'm in for. Okay. Excellent. Welcome. Um, um Tonight we're going to be talking about um, government a little bit, but let's let's get our announcements and that sort of stuff out of the way. Of course, Mormon Expression is brought to you by Whitefields Educational, which is the thing that um, Lindsay and I spend a lot of our time on. And um, I invite you all to go to whitefieldseducational.org and see what we have going on. You know, I, I'm I have a natural aversion to sort of fundraising and stuff like that. But then I was thinking about it and I'm like, well, everybody fundraises for everything. So fuck it. I'm going to keep doing it too. Um, so we, we invite people who support what we're doing to go and join. Um, it's a $35 membership fee. Um, for this first quarter of 2014 that we're in right now, we set ourselves a few goals. The first one was to open the studio, which we did. The second one was to start doing live broadcasts every Tuesday, which we did. The third one was to restart Voices, which is now up and running. Um, Katrine is doing a fabulous job with that, and I would invite you to go check that out and um, volunteer if you'd like to be on that. So we did that. And the other thing was to start our counseling services, our workshops, and those are now up and running as of this week. Um, and they are going wonderfully. We have a waiting list, and um, we're really excited about these things. Lindsay has been the um, brains behind that. Anything you want to add to that, Lindsay? Nope. Just excited, and we are going to open up new sessions because the need has been so great, which is awesome. And so if you want to join the sessions in Utah, then email me at lindsay at whitefieldseducational.org. That's Lindsay with an A. The other thing we're gathering as part of that, if you go to the website, you'll be able to see a list of um, therapists who have been um, personally vetted by me, who are um, experienced in dealing with individuals transitioning out of religion. Some of them are Mormon, some of them are not. And we have um, individuals from out of state and some who do um, uh, do their um, sessions through Skype. So even if you don't have um, an individual like this around, you can go and find those um, individuals at our website. We're excited about the second quarter. 
and the things coming up, I'm I'm excited to introduce that we will be um, part of the out. Part of the, the goal of Whitefields is really to it's it's not about religion per se. It's about what comes next. How do we how do we transition to a better life? Starting in second quarter, the first quarter, we were talking about therapeutic services, sort of these workshops, but not everybody wants or needs therapy. So in second quarter, we'll be focusing on building up some resources for individuals who may not necessarily need therapy or want therapy, but are looking for other resources like um, uh, one we've, we've talked about and we've started on are um, job counseling services for women who would be entering the workforce because in a fundamentalist religion, they stayed home with the kids. So we're looking at helping provide services like that. We'll be having an open house um, coffee hour here at the studio on Sunday, April 6th. The um, conference weekend, the birthday of, of uh, little baby Jesus will be right here at 1030 um, coffee. And, and for those who are interested in volunteer opportunities, um, in any of the aspects we have, we'll be talking about some of those opportunities. So for people around the Salt Valley who would like to sort of help out and believe in the mission we have, come out here and you can hear what we'll be planning for second quarter. Yeah, and Feminist Warren Housewives is going to do a live broadcast on Saturday of conference weekend. I don't have a time yet because it's going to be a big day for us on Saturday. So we have a lot going on. All the protesting? It's not a protest. It's faithful um, agitating. So, and we'll, we'll get there in a minute. Uh, just as a reminder, upcoming recording, this is uh, next week on Tuesday the 25th. We'll be talking about the ex-Mormon struggle for identity. The first um, will be um, the top 10 ways John Larson disagrees with John Larson. Um, sometimes I've said things that I don't actually believe, and uh, you'll find out what those are. The, the time commitment takes to be a good Mormon on the 8th, and on the 15th we'll be talking about heart cell, which is the church's patented and marketed um, marketing technique, I guess is, what, is what, what you'd say. So we'll be talking about those. Those are some of the upcoming podcasts, all here live on Tuesday. All right, well, that's enough of that bullshit. Um, let's move on to the topics of the night. First, we start with, new, you know what we need is, there needs to be like a little like music, like a little sound bumper. Do, do, do. Like, like we're, news. if we want to be like this morning zoo, we have to have like drops and like fart sounds and stuff like that. I try, hey, I tried. You put them in? Wait, wait, wait. You put fart noises in No, those? I have not. Give me some credit. I put like clapping and people burping. But that was just to cover up my well placed tapestry. <laughs> tapestry of, is of, one word for it. Of, of, Sentence enhancers. Yes. <laughs> of, of enhancement word. Emotional enhancing um, elements. Soul deteriorators. It adds to the program when you don't bleep. Well, you know, there, there's... You're at two. At two, Terry. <laughs> there's strong opinions. We put a vote out of whether to bleep it with the 440 megahertz tone, which is what I've bleeped it with. Like when I say, I'll bleep that out with a 440. Um, and then there's... Holy cow! Put twenty bucks in the swear jar. It'll be bleeped That's out. A I'm good. One. I'm good. I'm good. And then you put Ugh. the little hoo hawy cartoony sounds in, right? That's Lindsay. Hoo ha is like fifty cents. Put fifty cents in there. <laughs> Listen, this is what you guys all ask for. I and hope then, you're happy. and then we, if you just if you let them let them roll. Can, I, can we just say some some gentleman from the crowd today? Has prepaid on the swears. Well, I, I think he was buying. You were, you, you want, you were. That was an encouragement, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right. So, um, where what were we talking about? <laughs> I lost. All right. So, yeah, don't swear on the podcast. No, swear on the. I, I lost. All right, Lindsay. Um, I'm still waiting for the day that I hear Lindsay drop the f bomb. I did it once, and it was a gift. Thank you. John was having a really bad day. That's right. You it did was it for really me. difficult to say, and I still remember. It's like pornography; it never leaves your mind. Not if it's good. <laughs> All right. All right. So let's talk about the news for the week. Uh, we have a couple of stories we've been tracking, of course. Um, over there across the uh, Atlantic in uh, Great Britain, um, the, the, the Tom Phillips um, petition, uh, there's a lot of debate or, or what's going on here. Um, what, what, what's happening is this is a preliminary hearing um, where the, the British courts are assessing the legitimacy of the case. So it's not a lawsuit in, in typical, um, uh, tort fashion where you're, you're going after some kind of money or something like that. It's, it's a criminal proceeding, but because the state, which normally has, um, uh, dominance over that in, in the British system, you can actually basically sue for redress. Now, one thing that I do not know, and I don't know if anybody in the room knows, if the, the judge rules in Philip's favor, will the state prosecution take up the case and i don't know the answer to that or or if phillips and his lawyer has to prosecute it all the way through to the end anybody know all my united kingdom legal experts i know you're i think you're in the back i don't i don't know what's gonna you know happen. who would know reddit would know reddit <laughs> would give you an answer that's for sure so um so so the the, the they met on the west west minister magistrate district court Listen to arguments on Friday from either side. The church brought their array of six lawyers and um, Phillips brought his lawyer in and they pled basically, it, it's just, it's kind of like a grand jury. They basically said, this is the case that we're going to make. So the, the, the real evidence of this thing was not brought before there. It, this was all meta dialogue about what would happen. Um, the judge, the judge said they were going to rule on this, um, on Thursday. Um, but the judge could very well come back in on Thursday and ask them more questions. So Thursday, we could get a summary dismissal of the whole thing. Um, it could keep going. This hearing could keep uh, continuing on for quite some time, or it could, in fact, go to prosecution. But the actual trial for um, the church and Monson um, has not yet begun. Now, I I'm not an expert in, in British law, but if you sue a company, it is pretty normal to sue the officers of the company also. So if I'm going to sue Pepsi because I think they changed the flavor, if you see those lawsuits, you'll see the CEO almost universally named. Um, that's why I think some of the confusion that, that Phillips would have to appear in court himself, um, you know, so there's, there's Monson. just... Monson, uh, you mean Monson? Oh, yeah, yeah, Monson. I'm, I'm sorry, I apologize. So... So that, that, that's what's, that's what's going on there. Um, so we're, we're waiting with bated breath. Any, any, any comments on the, the court case? You, you're, you're right. Terry, I forgot to introduce you. Hi. Hey, welcome. <laughs> Can I talk about Terry for a minute? Please. Okay. I mean, this is a compliment. Oh my. No, listen, I really do. Terry, to me, she has such like the Mormon woman look to her and voice and when i found out she was a bishop's wife i was like oh my gosh bishop's wife ex-bishop's wife well wait 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 still married to the man oh still married but he's she's not, not a bishop, bishop anymore oh okay but anyway 
Oops. She's got a fascinating story with that. So we should get you on voices is what we should do. But anyway, okay. so I feel like when she's here, it's like legit. Like I'm really sitting with like a Mormon woman. She's She's been as close to power as possible. She's been married to a bishop. You've held the priesthood. Um, what? What? Um, how long have you guys been out of the church? Uh, I haven't gone to church for two and a half years. My husband hasn't either, but he wouldn't really consider himself out probably. He just doesn't want to go by himself. So long story short, we're lifelong Mormons, lived in Utah our whole lives. I've been married 30 years, 20, yeah, no, 29 years. Um, and about three and a half years ago, my husband was called to be the bishop and we'd been whatever else. He'd been elders quorum, president, young men's president. I was young women's president in all the presidencies. And we had done Mormonism, but in contradiction to what Lindsay said, I never really felt, I don't, a lot of people that leave the church talk about having, they really miss it or they've had this great love of Mormonism and I just never really felt like I fit in or so I don't see myself as that little Mormon whatever. But anyway, the reason I'm interested in this podcast tonight is because as soon as my husband was called to be bishop, my whole world fell apart and it had a lot to do with the conflict that I felt about feminism, leadership, all of that, when it, it's one thing when it's just some other guy and you can dismiss that person, but it was the person that, you know, sleeps in your bed. It's a whole nother story. So it all fell apart for me bad. And 15 months later, he quit, but not stopped believing. Uh, just to, because I couldn't do it anymore. So um, that's where we are. So he's still sort of, I mean, I don't know. He'd have to tell you how believing he is, semi-believing, not attending. And you run a lot in the, she's involved in Mormon feminism and the feminist circles, so. Yeah, I started out helping, I'm an accountant by trade, so I've been helping out at Mormon Stories with their books is sort of my contribution to whatever it is this is. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Well, welcome. We're happy to have you here tonight. So, um, returning to our news, the, the second story um, is coming up on conference. Of course, last conference, there was the Ordained Women Movement, um, with some great photo ops of, of these. I saw myself on the news last night. You were on the news. Were you there at the first Ordained Women? I was there. Oh, okay. Um, She's legit. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering how, how early I want to get myself in trouble. I have a theory that most of the women... All right, I'll, I'll, I'll just go full... full in trouble here we go <laughs> so here's what i say the church should do they should come out with a chair and some consecrated oil and say all right sit down all of you that want to be ordained right right yeah exactly how many of the women there actually want to be ordained do you think Ooh, i think 70 percent really i think, I think yeah, 77 percent i do the number that they oh you're right they did come up with yeah, the number they did a survey. now it may not be a good study because there are people who don't necessarily believe who are willing to go to the temple and other things so it's not necessarily a good, a good measure. You know? Can I just point out that you, that argument is exactly the church's argument in the letter that they gave us? Sometimes great minds think alike. <laughs> Speaking of the letter, let's go into the letter. So the letter this week they sent out, um, addressed specifically to April Young Bennett, Deborah Jensen, Kate Kelly, and Hannah Wheelwright. The leadership of ordained women. Yes. The formal structure. 
Do they pick four just to give a fuck you to the church? Do they, they don't have three? Is that is that a feminist thing? I have thing? no idea. Oh. I probably just okay. The so that really want to so, do it. Um, the 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 letter is the most condescending, um, terrible piece of PR that the church has put out in a while, and that's saying a sometimes lot. Sometimes the church amazes me. The billions and billions of dollars that they spend. And some of the stuff they put out is very polished and very interesting. And sometimes you're just like, what are you guys thinking? Um, they, they, let's talk about the women and children part. Well, <laughs> first, let's say what this is. Okay. So okay. this is a response. Ordained women always uh, sends out a press release because uh, any letters that they have sent to the church and they have sent, I've been part of those discussions. They have tried to petition meetings with the church leadership. And of course we know that that has not happened. And so they put out a, a press release to be respectful saying, this is our intent, but instead of lining up, we are asking that you admit us. If you give us tickets, then we'll just come in. You know, it's not going to be a big deal. So this letter is the response to, ordains ordained women's petition this year to get into conference and or priesthood there's another part the church also issued a general warning or um to all the press asking them not to bring cameras or recording devices on because we all know that when organizations start whatever they're going to do with a press blackout that's usually a sign that what they're doing is on the up and up but so they tell the women um that this is for the boys and it's for fathers and sons to bond. Why would you monsters want to take that away from them? I'm going to quote, We invite you as our sisters to participate with women everywhere in a parallel meeting for women and parallel. girls. Parallel. For women and girls. At the back of the bus. Right? <laughs> Separate but equal. But, but Separate they, but better. Come on. Women are incredible. But they also say that, that this conference for women is, is great because it's about women and children. They actually have the audacity to group women and children in together. Well, that was one of the recent changes after last uh, priesthood sessions organization with ordained women. They changed the age limit to eight years old, right? Is that right? Well, it used Girls? to be every uh, one meeting was for young women. Six months later, it was for the adult women, the Relief Society. So you only got every one other. a year instead of mm -hmm. two. And so that didn't seem fair, I guess. So now they've combined all girls together, similar to they do the boys. I don't know why it's eight instead of 12. Well, that so was one of the feminist critiques. And you can see these very poignant pictures of women, adult women, standing outside while young boys who are not ordained um, are walking in. Or, I mean, there's no ordination check at the door, right? So it's not for priesthood members. It's for men. So there's two types of, of in, in, in um, gender discrimination, there's two types of discrimination. And, you, you, Lindsay, you'll probably be able to tell me the actual terms for these. One of them is a biased negative, which is, say, say if I say men are stupider than women, that's a that's a, that's a negative bias. I would there, say that's true. There's yeah. a. I'm kidding. You, that it's a bias, or no, I'm kidding. Just that, go. That there's a there's a second one that's a little bit more insidious, in which you say, which you say, women are better caregivers than men are. That's also a form of sexism, and you see this language all over in the church, um, and and it's sometimes referred to as gilded cage or. Um, um, 
there, there, there's other terms for it, but the, the, you'll, you'll see it oftentimes in, 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 in very patriarchal societies where they put women up on a pedestal, but then they'll, they'll use that pedestal to keep them out of the governing structure or women are too pure. We call it benevolent patriarchy or chicken, chicken pa- patriarchy. Benevolent patriarchy. That's the, that's the, that's the word. Benevolent sexism. Right. And the other term is like antagonistic or. Sexism. It's like, it's just very patronizing. Like, you are too beautiful and too special to have to deal with voting. You know, we hear the, a lot of the same yeah. arguments with suffrage. Like, we can't have women leave the house. It's dangerous out there. And, you know, it's easier to clean your house than to pay for a, a ballot. It's cheaper, too. So right. it was interesting, too, the, the article or the letter that the press release the church issued talked about you're the minority. And my first thought was going to the vote and suffrage the majority of women didn't want the vote either at the time, right? So right. it would uh, destroy the family. Right. It would it would change things. It would destroy society. I mean, the arguments are identical. Well, the, s- the same thing happened in the civil rights movement. They said, you know, most people, most African Americans, do not want this. You're asking for something they really don't want. And really, if we ordain black men, then we're doing them a disservice because then they could become sons of perdition. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Charles. So I'm a little late coming into this conversation, but as we were talking about the uh, women's meeting and everything, I happened to be lucky enough to get all of the Relief Society emails uh, sent to me, and our Relief Society president sent out a... You mean your ward Relief Society president? Okay. Okay. Yes. Um, Sent out an email to everybody for the historic general women's meeting. And, uh, you know, all the details in a quote that says, As women of the church gather together, sisters, mothers, and daughters, they, their families, and the church will be strengthened and blessed. First presidency. So I, it, uh, kind of made me chuckle. I think it was in, like, the state, uh, the state conference meetings. They were having a historic, New thing, and now this is now a historic general women's meeting because everybody gets caught. Well, that's a great segue to the letter because the letter talks about how these women, ordained women, are detracting from the conversation and really um, disrupting the process to insinuate that there is this conversation, they use the word, there's this great conversation happening and you guys are just detracting from it, which is, which is to say that like, Things like this, this historic thing. Well, that didn't come from you. That came from us. And we were planning it all along. We just waited 150 years to do so because now it's historic, which is is awesome. This is just a bastardized extension of the don't make me hit you argument, right? If you, if you, if you say you've got to obey my rules, you've got to take baby steps or I'm going to take it all away. You don't make me come down there. And it's it's patronizing and it's weak. Well, it's not just that. It's be be happy for what you get, which is what we always hear. This this letter is very shaming. It's very silencing. They sent their woman press uh, representative to do it, which is a new feature in the church as well. Yep. Thanks to a lot of this um, bad press, I guess, ag- against uh, the church with women. And so here they they send their own Phyllis Schlafly to come and do the church's dirty work. Yeah, so we'll we'll watch and and see what happens. Undoubtedly, um, there's maneuvering that's going on with the um, church security and and, and whatnot. And um, of course, the church very um, image conscious. 
wants this all to go away. And so. they want to block us from Temple Square is the new the new update. They won't even let us on the grounds. Well, we're not the, sure, right? Well, they've asked us not to come on the grounds to stay out where they designate the free speech zone, where the people are that are. You know, a, cu- a couple of years ago, there was the a protest in Salt Lake. Um, we covered it live on the podcast, I think, where there was a protest, and they shut the whole fucking block down and drew, and drew all those drew all those gates. So they'll 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 hit the nuclear button if they need to. Well, I'm wondering. So will they have somebody standing at every gate yes. and asking whatever woman is coming in? Are you attempting to? Absolutely, they will. Because you know what? That's going to generate some really great press for them. So good job, church. That's going to look really great. I happen to read. Well, I looked at the article that came out in the desert news and the some of the comments and the number one comment i only read about 10 of the 400 and whatever but why don't you guys just leave the church so that whole thing is coming up again where you know they try to have conference talks about acceptance and whatever Igdor's saying that's so sweet and loving and arms extended and then this kind of comment just generates in the membership the hate speech, you know, they get out of here. I, one lady said, I, I left my church 35 years ago because I didn't like it. Why don't you guys just do the same? Go ahead. No, just a question for uh, those within the ordained women body. Have you ever been offered tickets that were given to men? Have there been yes, they don't. They won't take. They, they, don't, they want so to get them legitimately. You could show up with a ticket and still be. Yeah, one away. of the one of the strategies last year was to have women ask their local. Um, I guess state president for uh, tickets. I don't know the process. Your I can't bishop remember. would have them, and some people were given it. But once it was understood that it was for women, it was denied. And I can't remember. I want to say that maybe someone went and sat for a few minutes, but I, I, I don't know. I'm not comfortable talking about that. But yeah, that that's definitely. But men did offer tried. their tickets to the women, but the the yeah, ordained women ticket. movement didn't want to get them that way. They wanted to get them actually from. The leadership, I guess. Go ahead. Just a brief question. Um, one of the things that I found most interesting about the letter was how it specifically said a couple times, you're in the minority, you're a small group, most people don't feel this way, you need to be quiet. And maybe it applies to the broader conversation we're going to have tonight. Is that a common tactic that the church uses? They, This is a message that they're sending to the general membership of this is how you're supposed to approach this, this is how you're supposed to approach ordained women. It's just telling the leaders essentially what to think. Is that what they do? I don't know that that minority argument is common, but shaming definitely is. I would say the minority argument is used often. I mean, first of all, I just want to point out the irony in this argument. So in in the one hand, they say, oh, you're the minority that is so small, such a small group of women, and you're so distracting that you're ruining everything. So it's so great that this small, distracting group of women is so distracting. Look, the, the... There's only one place left where these faithful young men can go. <laughs> I'm sorry, John. And not be tempted by. I know it's really hard. The, 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 the. the you know, I just really want the, to be the a man. That are that are all around that they have to deal with all the time, and there's this one safe place, <laughs> and you're going to destroy it. Thank you. <laughs> I have a question Pauline. for Lindsay. So in the KSL article, it says the activist group detracts from dialogue. So is that saying, hey, we're the church is saying, we're here for you, let's talk. But you've tried to talk to them, and then they 
don't want to talk to you. And they just yes, don't I, I love to or- say, yeah, we're not detracting from dialogue. We're detracting from monologue. I mean, there's a difference between letting us have a conversation. All, conversations are happening. So to your question, they're, they're trying to make it act like they, like we're having these conversations, that these important conversations are happening. And we have been trying for years and years before my generation, women have been trying to have these conversations. Okay, because it seems like they're spinning it that it's your fault. Like, hey, we're here to well, talk to you. Because, and then, sorry. but you guys don't want to talk to us anymore. You just want to be out there for the public view. I think so they're saying because way. you're insisting on ordination, because you're not willing to talk about something less, you're not willing to agree to something less, then you've stopped the conversation. That, that the ordained women's movement has stopped the conversation because they won't engage in the way the church wants them to. But from my point of view, most of the grounds the church has given has come after this. So I, I exactly. think I think it's there would be reversed. no conversation or no public conversation at least yeah, without this. Yeah, for sure. Go ahead. I was just wondering if there is anything that men can do to help in this particular grouping that you're going to be having there, or is it more just the more women absolutely you can get there? come come? We we okay. we want allies there, and um, I'm not like a activist or strategist, and I'm not going to give any advice. But if I were to give advice. What I would say to men who wanted to help out is put on your suits and go and swarm all the exits. Don't go in. Just clog them up. That's where the security guys are going to be. But I have no advice. (laughs) I I would encourage people. uh, So one of the things that a lot of people that I hear, especially in the ex-Mormon community, is, well, I'm not a believer anymore, so I feel like that that detracts from their mission. And... Uh, Kate Kelly is really good about that balance because she is a believer. I mean, optimistically so to her detriment sometimes because she was really, really surprised that they didn't let her in last time and it was heartbreaking for her. But if you feel like you, um, don't belong, I think ordained women could still use your support at this point. They are a David against a really big Goliath. And with the current tone of this letter, it sounds like a really cruel gauntlet has been thrown down. And um, the rhetoric has been ramped up from the members. And so there is this divisiveness that is happening. And of course, the burden of it is being placed on ordained women rather on the church, where I think that the burden of explanation should be. They need to explain to us why these conversations aren't happening, why women aren't ordained. We shouldn't be having to explain it to everybody else. Oh, Lindsay, you guys are so cute when you're angry. I know. Uh, um, all right, well, you know, um, um, I hope you guys get what you want, I guess. Um, so good luck. Good luck to you all, and we'll all be watching um, the fight. The faithful agitation. Yeah, good luck. <laughs> um so uh, we spend a lot of time on this, and it's partly because it moves into our topic for tonight. I've, um, I've watched a lot of um, discourse and dialogue about the church and its governing structure, and I think there are some basics of the way the church governs that, that I, you know, I'd like to take the next um, few minutes to kind of go over. The church, like, like any organization, um, is, a, is a very complicated entity. And there are a lot of different things going on. And I think whenever we oversimplify it, um, 
we do a disservice to what's really happening and understanding what's going on and why things are the way they are. So tonight what I want to do is kind of pull apart the philosophy behind how the church actually governs itself and the, the history of that and what are the elements and components that, that, that make up the way the church governs itself today. Um, in organizations, you basically have two basic modes that you can go about. One is you can form a hierarchy in which there is power that's concentrated in the hands of a few or in the hands of a structure. The other is you can be egalitarian, which is the, the, the power is evenly shared across um, the parties in there. And of course, these are abstractions, so there can be all sorts of um, differentiations between them. Um, most of our primate um, relatives are um, hierarchies, and they have what we call dominance hierarchies. A dominance hierarchy is basically the members of the society fight for dominance. Um, and th then we'll talk about how power, we'll talk tonight how power gets um, installed in a few and how it gets transferred. But on the, on the basics, you, you have to organize yourself into a structure. And I believe, as do many other um, theorists, that hierarchies are the way they are because they're the most efficient. They're the, the best way to do command and control. If you're they, on a, they used to be. I'm going to give you that caveat. Okay, and, and, and we'll get into this. because and, and we're going to touch on different parts of feminist theory. And let, let, let me say this about feminism before we start. We throw the word feminism around quite a bit. Fem, feminism represents a wide, wide swath of, of thought. And under the umbrella of feminism, there are different theories that are contradictory, that have um, different ways we can take it. It's sort of like saying economics, really. For example, John does not shave his armpits, and I do. Laser. You don't, you know, I'm just saying. Uh, can I define my terms really quick? Because John and I are going to uh, knock heads a little bit, if you will. Yes, we will. Have a little bit of a power struggle mm -hmm. over the, over this issue. So I wanted to define power. So, that, so I would like to hear what you guys think of the term power, but for me, power is the capacity to secure obedience and compliance on the part of others. I like I like compliance, particularly. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll agree with your definition of power. But, um, and power authority. Okay. Authority is a legitimate power. So forms of power to be deemed in a group as um, binding or putting people under obligation to submit to that power. Legitimate inside the system. Absolutely. So, so, yeah, absolutely. So, so it's the recognized power of the system. There you go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I agree okay. with that. Yes. I'm, I'm with yes. you. Got it. We're on the same page. See, that wasn't so hard. But we are in agreement that that you really can't throw around the word, this is a good feminist and this is a bad feminist, or feminist theory says, you can say feminist theory says that, but that's not a trump card because you can find other feminist theories that, that that might disagree with that. So so there are some like radicalized, and I hate even using that word, um, feminism that would suggest, say, that... Um, we want to do away with all men. Well, this is a really fringe belief, right? And that doesn't mark the greater school of feminism at all. Just like there, you can find radical um, anarchists who, you know, believe in no monetary system whatsoever. Um, so, so that doesn't really mark the general school of economics or socialism or capitalism. You can always find these sort of extremist positions. Can I can I ask you what your definition of feminism would be if you were to define it? No. Both of you. No. <laughs> Um, I, 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 I would say, I would take a more academic view and say this is, um, if, if we, if we use it in terms of what you're talking about, like power and authority, this is the study of the relationship of women in relationship to those power structures. Um, 
and 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 when when and in all aspects of human endeavor so culture religion um family rearing sexuality all all those things the 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 particular branch of study that deals with um gender relations especially with women and i think a lot of the masculine studies that do happen fall under the auspice of those who are already studying feminism do you have anything you want to say about that no listening i um for me, feminism is not just about women, and we'll get into that when we talk about patriarchy, but feminism is like the the current liberation struggle of our time for human rights, in, in my opinion. It's a very broad term. It frees democracies from patriarchy. So I know that's kind of like a radical thing to say, but um, that's kind of, that that's how I view feminism, as a very broad, encompassing term. Hmm. I know, right? right? Well, um, it, c- it could be. I mean, the, when you say free from patriarchy, I mean, that implies all sorts of things. Yes, it does. Um, <laughs> so, so when we talk about hierarchies, hierarchies are, um, they, they're sort of mathematical. They're abstracted from, from you know, gender or, or, or other kind of structures. Um, so when you have an authoritarian um Organization and it, it always has a, some kind of hierarchy. It could be a very small hierarchy. If you had a small group, you could have an authoritarian hierarchy of one person who commands and controls everything. But but authoritarianism is generally defined as a, a form of government where the citizens or the members of the society um, have to have absolute. Um, they're absolutely bound to obey the authority. Like that, there's no there's no opting out inside the organization. Now, in, in the United States, you could obviously just leave the church, right? So so the church can be an authoritarian organization, and they can't say, well, just leave it, because inside the domain of the church, it's still authoritarian. The fact that somebody can opt out of the organization doesn't make it any less authoritarian. Yeah, which is different from, say, North Korea. Right, right. But they can follow the same um, the same pattern inside. Well, there's going to be a lot of crossover anyway when we talk about these power structures because a lot of them operate in similar ways. They operate in similar tactics. So, so, so we we talked about egalitarian. There's actually a term called a dominator culture, which would if the best way to understand that is it's the opposite of egalitarianism, which is there's a small group that dominates in terms of authority what everybody else is doing. Now, now let, let's go, and we kind of put these, ta- these things on the table. Let's talk about like the United States, for example. Um, capitalism is by its nature um, authoritarian, meaning capitalism, a lot of people confuse this. The question when you're talking about capitalism is, well, who are the capitalists? The capitalists are shareholders and companies. So the entire capitalist system is not designed around employees making money or people buying and selling things. It's about companies being structured in order to make the capitalists money. That's that's just economic theory. So capitalism oftentimes goes hand in hand with democracy, but it doesn't have to. For example, China is a communistic capitalistic society. So you're talking about economic system and a governance structure. So a democracy is by its nature egalitarian. Everybody has a vote, right? But if you see things that are truly democratic, you'll know them because they can't get anything done at all. Um, they, they, they just can't move forward. So that's why the United States was installed a democratic republic, um, which means the democratic process was used to, to elect the authoritarians, the republicans, the people who would run the show. So and that's the, working really well for us, isn't it? What, what are you, some kind of commie? What do you, what, what do you no, mean? No, I, I did listen to an economist last night and, uh, 
he said, actually, it has been working well for us. He showed all these graphs about um, tax revenues and and home prices rising, all kinds of things that would be problematic if anybody in the government could make any decisions, but can't since they can't, we just kind of go along and... So and he was talking like the balance, the tension that happens by having the two sides. Yeah. Is that what Sometimes talking? we're better off not having them come to any decisions because a lot of times those tend out to be bad. Well, I, I take Winston Churchill's quote about democracy here. Winston Churchill said, and I paraphrase, you know, democracy is the worst form of government except every other one that's ever been tried. Um, so you, you get these, these things about capitalism and democracy. They're riddled with all sorts of problems, but planned economies haven't worked out for us at all. So, so it's, it's, it's working. And, and one of the brilliant thing, thing of the United States is that, um, the capitalism harnesses a fundamental human drive, which is greed. And, well, and people would argue that communism is working for some. Well, I, 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 I'm just saying, listen, how we, how we, what we attribute success and I'm using air quotes here. Um, success. You guys and do need to see Lindsay. It would really enhance the. <laughs> Usually her hand gestures are seen. <laughs> <laughs> but success and working, I think, is a construction of how we view our world. And our world has a lot of problems in it. So I'm just saying, if we had a true democracy, you think, you say things would never get done, but having a system that's based on the will of the people hasn't really been tried successfully um, because we are still a developing people. Yeah, I mean, it's it's fair. And I, I'm not necessarily saying that all communist um, attempts or all socialist attempts have been failures. I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not like a, a zealot here. Um, but... Yeah, you, you need to define your terms of success for, for, for sure and what, what you're trying to accomplish. And I think capitalism defines that. It's the capital. We're trying to grow the economy. Um, and, and does it achieve that? It, it does. So when we start talking about the church, you know, one of the questions keeping your back, back of your head is what is the goal of this organization? What is it trying to do? And is it successful in that, in that endeavor? Okay. You just, you just want to fight with me tonight, Lindsay. <laughs> you got a chip on your shoulder. I, I do not have a chip on my shoulder. All right, let's... I drink some liquid courage, also known as Diet Coke, before I came. So, <laughs> so, so we've established their hierarchies and their, 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 their modes of control, right? That they're controlling other people. And anybody who's ever worked in any company understands pretty quickly why that has to happen. Um, you know, because because a fundamental question of democracy, for example, is does everybody really know what should happen? Well, don't you hear though now? I won't even be able to throw out names, but the techie companies and that with the young leaders and everything, they're these egalitarian, flat organizations, and they do great. That's all. That's all the details I have. Um, but I mean, I don't so know of any. It, I don't know of any that have lasted for any amount of time. I don't think you could. I don't think you could. Name so none me. of the big ones, like Google or no, any no, of those, no, are no. flat. I don't think you could name me one Fortune 500 company that uses anything resembling an egalitarian structure. Yeah, I, again, but they are operating in a very capitalistic society, so that already Absolutely. changes the nature of the, the ruling structure. Well, I, I think I think you have an important point, which is you have to decide what you're trying to do in the first place. So if your goal is to feed everybody. Then you can evaluate and say, is the governing structure accomplishing that goal? That's a good goal, I would say. Um, yeah. Okay, so let's go in. Let's let's just dive right into the Jello salad. Um, 
Let's talk about patriarchy. Yes. The first form, first form of government. Been waiting all night to talk about patriarchy. The problem with the word patriarchy is one of those. <sighs> Here we go. Oh God, it's one of those words that gets thrown around so much. It's been so diluted, and it means a lot of different things and to a lot of different people that it's hard to puzzle out what people are talking about. So we can talk about like if you go to anthropology, they'll talk about patriarchal societies as opposed to matriarchal societies, which. Um, comes from the root of, of the word. And, 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 and anthropologists will look for signs like property inheritance. So they go down patrilinear lines or matril, mat, matri, matrilinear. Which for matrilinear. thousands and thousands of years, can we even find, maybe there's one matriarchal society in the mountains somewhere, but that's about it, Like right? one true matriarchal society. No, there, yeah. there, there are some around. They tend to be isolated. But they're not true matriarchies. Because if like, we get started, they're not oh. true Scotsmen. I mean, what, 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 I mean, when you say they're not true matriarchies, I mean, this is part of the problem. Is once we start talking into this, into this shit, we say, oh well, well, that's not really it. Go ahead. I just point out that ancient Egypt, like property lines and the bloodline, ran through the feminine line, but the men still had power. So, but it definitely. Um, that's why they just interbred, though. That's why they're all. Sleeping with their sisters, but but they lasted for over four thousand years. Yeah. So, but and 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 these are not black and white. Um, you know, from back when I took anthropology classes, you'll oftentimes get a mix of, of these sort of things, right? It's it's very rare for for um, everything to be concentrated in a single hand. Like w w one of the cultures that I'm very familiar with, I've studied quite a bit, are, were the Iroquois. And for example, the the the, the Iroquois. Men were the warriors. They fought wars, but only the women could actually declare war and declare peace. So the women would hold a council and they would decide if the men would go off to war or not. I like that deal. Like make all the decisions, but don't have to fight don't any have the of the danger. <laughs> so, the, so in in the in the, in the Iroquois, the men had a kind of a traditional husbandly role, meaning they had sort of a patriarchal family structure. Except a man couldn't dissolve a marriage. A, a woman, a wife could at the drop of a hat. She could just call the whole damn thing off at any point. So, so the, the women held, so when you start looking at this society, which is sort of an evolved society without a lot of outside influence, it had evolved sort of a power balance or power sharing, um, um, mechanism. And, and I think as, as we moved from what would likely be more balanced male and female systems, we moved into like, um, the agrarian age, I think those sort of started tipping more towards these patriarchal... So is it, it was physical strength. I mean, that's basically how men, and I mean, why there's so much more male hierarchy that, how did we get there? I don't know. I don't know if you can make that argument. I mean, it's, it's an interesting theory, but to, to, to demonstrate that theory, you'd have to show that, that, that men typically use violence against women as a way to achieve the, the overall um, power structure. Now, I think this is key. I'll, I'll let you guys respond to that. But when we start talking about patriarchy, I want, I want to, I want to divide out two particular areas. One is the cultural patriarchy. And it, Mormon culture is very patriarchal culturally. So what they, what they say is that the man is in charge of the household. The man chooses who prays. The man determines, does all the blessings. The, the, the man, um, traditionally presides, presides is, is the word. That is an extremely patriarchal structure. It's not just cultural though. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm using that as a distinction between that and the governing structure Got of the it. church. 
So when we start talking about the government of the church, as we're going to get into tonight, there's a lot of other things going on than patriarchy. And I think one of the biggest problems when we talk about patriarchy is not pointing out these problems with it or talking about how to fix it. It's problematic and needs to be fixed. It's this assumption that the church runs by patriarchy. Um, I was reading, I was re- in preparation, I was reading some feminist theory, and there, there, there is an underlying assumption in some feminist writings, which is if one man, and, and actually it's fascinating because this research has come out of now transgender studies. Because what, what's, what's, what's been dominating these, is, is looking at, at male, um, patterns and female patterns. But now coming out of literature, we're starting to look at people who are crossing over to different genders and what happens to those people. So what, what, what there's, a, there's an underlying assumption that if one man is in power, all men benefit from that because they're morphologically the same. If a man, if, a, if, a, if, a, if, a, if somebody who's, um, and I, I get my gender, sex, all those terms combobulated in my head, but somebody who's a ma- presenting as a male gender is in power, the, the theory basically says then all other men, all others who match, benefit from that. And and I don't know that that's necessarily a good assumption. We're going to talk about that more. That it's true that men um, in, in the LDS patriarchy are the only ones that, that, that can serve. But I think the idea that men, all men as a universal set, benefit from other men, um, I, I think is a little problematic. Now, we have to balance that off what I'm just saying, that the culture itself is patriarchal. So a man who's married automatically benefits from the patriarchal structure. But I think you're right in saying there's many men who never make their way into that, whatever you call it, moving up the ranks, you know, you're this when you're this age, and then you're that, and then you're this, and then you're in the high council, and then, you you know, a lot of people that never happens for, and then there is some sadness, I don't know, or feeling less than. I think for the men as well. But that's the, so can I define patriarchy? Cause you guys have kind of summed it up, but I want to clear something up. There's this misunderstanding that patriarchy is the oppression of women by men. Okay. That is not what patriarchy is. It's not the oppression of men oppressing women, right? Okay. So patriarchy is, um, just a hierarchy. I think the word literally means a hierarchy of priests. Like Petar. Pater is, fa- is father. The father. Is father. So Mater versus Pater. Tomater, Pater, that you, you have the, you go, the which, the... which side of the family is, is running the show. So what patriarchy does is it divides me, some men from other men and all men from women and children. Does it make sense? So men are still privileged over women. And <laughs> this is a word that John and I always argue over. Privilege, meaning it gives them access to benefits and potential power that women will never have. So in the church, it is a patriarchy in the sense that even if a bunch of you yahoos at the bottom are men, you still at least have the potential to be in charge, whereas a woman will never, ever, ever have that potential. There's just no potential. There's no accident of change that you and might you climb up the ladder. you still your babies, I, right? I mean, there's still privileges that practically every I, I, man... I agree absolutely with you. That that's a good definition. That men in the church from a governance structure have the potential to achieve these positions of authority. But where I'd respond is saying, what is that potential worth? And I would say it's worth less than zero. If we if we observe if we observe chimpanzees again, when there's a when there's a hierarchy dis, um, disruption, when the alpha gets dis- disrupted, what happens is the females and the children will move off to the side. 
And then all of the males will fight to reorganize the structure. And this is why I was talking about that dominance hierarchy. They will all go in and battle out, and then they'll reestablish the hierarchy. But the, the, the thing I want to push back on what some thinkers say is that potential of being the alpha is a benefit to the male. And I would say it's not nearly as beneficial as you think it is because a beta role is not necessarily better than the feminine well, role. A benefit is not like something that you necessarily want. A lot of men have said in this ordination question, for example, that priesthood's a drag. You know, they often equate it to like, oh, you really want to go help someone move out of the van, like out of their house with a U-Haul? Okay, if you want that. So clearly when we're using the term benefit, we have to understand it's not it's not like you get a hundred bucks every time you grow a penis. It's that you you have access although that would be awesome. It's that you have access Wait, to do they grow more Wait, than I... one? <laughs> Don't they? So, <laughs> Is so, that what happens? But but to, to when my, you get the priesthood? To my point, the word priesthood you have this governance of the church, this this governance hierarchy that really starts with bishops on up. Because so, most most positions, most male positions in the church do not exercise any real power. That is true. So is the big bad really the hierarchy, not patriarchy? Is that what you're trying well, to what say? Well, what I'm trying to say in this it's podcast is both. we are talking about the governance of the church. So if we take an average ward that has 300 members, 150 men, 150 women, there's really only one man in that in that that and 300 that, people who's exercising When my husband power. was that man. He, he was that man. Then so, that was bad. And it would have been just as bad if it were a woman or a man. I mean, I'm agreeing with you. So you're not saying it's a like, benefit is what you're the saying. The bad is that it's one person. And the, the other bad, for, to, be, to be clear, we're talking about patriarchy, is we're saying it can only be a male. But in the Which church, makes it worse. In the church of, of however many million people it is, I mean, it's realistically five or six million people. So uh, for a group of 300, you have one person who's exercising real power. And then when you move up to the stake level, we're talking usually about 3,000 people. You really, again, only have one male. So when you're talking about a 3,000-person kind of distribution of, of, of power, you're talking about 11 or 12 men who are exercising real power. But, um, I mean, so the governance, even though the benefit doesn't benefit all men in the way that we'd consider benefit. It's not like an awesome thing to be a man in the church, especially at the bottom level. And I would say it's not an awesome thing to be a man from in the a church power at all. Perspective. From a power perspective. But, but from a family perspective, the men are granted power. So they do have dominance in them. That's what the distinction of the culture they, is. Not just in a family perspective. If you walk into a ward house, uh, men automatically have more power than, than I would. How so? Well, there's a case going on online of a woman that got uh, upset at a basketball game, a ward basketball game, and she yelled at the referee or something. I can't remember the exact details. And anyway, they got and she got into a fight with this referee, and he lunged at her. And I think she hit him, and he hit her. And so they called the police. She got escorted off the premises. This guy, it was act her actual ward house building. This referee, I don't know, he was like a friend of someone, but he was a Mormon. He used his priesthood authority to kick her out of her own building. She had no no say. So that's Wait, a kind of an extreme. A regular schmo used his priesthood authority. Uh, he was a man. I mean, a Mormon man. And I, and and I know that that's an extreme case, but I mean, we we hear stories of this, you know, happening. I would say that it's not necessarily an extreme case, and it's an abuse of the patriarchal power, but it's not institutionalized. I, I dare say that most 
of the real power holders in the church would, when they hear that story, would cringe that that's not um, put in the books. That's an abuse of authority. It's an abuse of power. But they have access to it. I'll tell you a story. I I'm, I swear to God, I'm not making this up. <laughs> Always good. I was 14. This is me. Mm-hmm. I was 14. And um, I was playing basketball. And the way our stake worked is you needed re- you need to supply refs. Well, right after the young men played, the women played. So there was a women's an adult women's game right after we played. Um, and I was one of the only guys from the wards. I said, just just re- ref. You you know I you, you, we there was another ref, and so I got refereed into this game. I called a, f- a foul. I was fourteen. I was a kid. I got punched by a woman. Are you, now, are you trying now, to say that now, you're being abused by women now, in the now, church? Now, 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 wait a minute. Do you know where the story the story goes from here? Do you know what they told me? Never hit a never hit a woman back. You were punched by a girl. That's, Suck it up. That's patriarchy. That, that, that's there, there's there's the the opposite thing. Here you have abuse that that's that's coming about. This happens to men sometimes. When men go to report um, domestic abuse, what they're told all the time is, what are you fucking talking That's about? You don't want to tell anybody you were hit by a girl. Go ahead. Um, when I'm distracted by that, I was kind of coming up for something before. We were talking about um, benefits and how a man can get benefits from being at a privileged place, like maybe a bishop. And I'm thinking not so much of the person in power being benefited, but you know, bishops are kind of spiritual leaders, healers. And I just think of uh, women who I've met who have had spiritual leadership and presence and aura about them that if they had been given a position or a place to not benefit themselves but benefit others by being in that spiritual position, I feel like that's where people are losing out, is women not being able to. Oh, so you're saying that the church misses out because they don't have, um, they're cutting off half the population is basically your argument. That's exactly what I think. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. And let's be clear, um, patri- the church is patriarchal. And it's culturally so, and this is bad. It's, it's, it's a mess. It, it results in all sorts of things, like both these stories we just shared. I, I gotta cut in, cause this is, to, to your point, I always have these discussions with men who say, yeah, but it sucks to be a man too, cause just like you said, you know, um, don't hit a girl. This is patriarchy. This is what you have to understand. It's not women against men. I can't say that enough. Patriarchy from a young age initiates boys into patriarchal masculine traits. It also initiates women into patriarchal feminine traits. You could only make that argument, Lindsay, if you could show that a matriarchal society does not do the same. Matriarchy is the same system, just reversed. Then you're making no distinction by saying patriarchy. You're saying human. Patriarchy is only different because it is run by See, men. Here's the biggest problem that, that uh, rhetorically that, that a lot of feminist advocates have, is you say, um, there's violence on men. It's the patriarchy. There's violence on women. It's the patriarchy. It's raining. It's the patriarchy. No, it's dry. No, 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 it's the no, no. patriarchy. The, the you, patriarchy is different. So uh, matriarchies uh, attribute what we would consider masculine qualities to women. Okay, so that's the difference. Patriarchy, as we as it's played out, masculine toughness, being strong, being, I don't know, aggressive. But those are masculine traits. They're traits that we all have. Women have it. We've seen it. You've been punched by a woman. But in a patriarchy, by the way, not I have been punched by. We could go all night. We could go all night with. But, and see, nurturing is given to women, and all those soft traits, and that's really useful in ancient communities when you're building empires because you need someone 
to have those qualities. You need to have nurturing in a society to perpetuate the species and, and to care for, for the, the children. And so that was ascribed to, to women. And to build empires and dominance, you had to do hard things like genocide and kill a lot of people and beat things up. And that got assigned to men. And that, I think that that is the difference here is, and especially in the church, when we have these defined gender roles, it absolutely divides us and it harms both sides. Well, I, 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 th- I think what, what needs to be careful, and, and this goes to this, this whole talk um, tonight, is when you attribute certain negative aspects, you know, to the fact that what we're saying is the governing structure, to be in the governing structure, be in a position of power, you have to be a man. Women are systematically eliminated from that. And so if you were going to argue for reform, on that. Now, most of us would argue for reform just on the face that it's ridiculous. It's, it's just patently ridiculous to do. But if you want to make a, an argument for reform, you'd have to make the case of what happens to the organization. How does the organization reform when it has, let's say, egalitarian or it has a, a, a female-dominated structure? And, and I think sometimes the argument gets so heated and so passionate. I mean, you, you can see Lindsay and I, who principally agree on this stuff and are fairly real, real red in it, will start, our temperatures will start going up. Because the problem is when you start talking about these roles, it's something we all experience every day, in and, in and out, in so and out. So we're saying matriarchy, patriarchy, one's not better than the other. So how do we get to the egalitarian? Is it possible? Or you're well, saying well, it's not well, possible? Well, no, I would even say you're, you're assuming the egalitarian is better. It may or may not be. All right, we got. Go ahead. You, you, we got several. You guys. Um, I just have like an anthropological anthropological example illustration, because thirty years ago there was a troop of baboons that was being studied for the way that the male domination culture negatively impacted the. Was it the Kikarok? Um, I'm not sure. It was in Kenya. That's all I know. It was, and it was a baboon. A group of baboons, like 60 baboons. Anyway, sorry, I'm nervous. Okay. <laughs> oh, sorry. Okay. Anyway, what happened is, I mean, they're a nasty group of monkeys. What happens is whoever's the biggest ape just gets, is in charge, gets to, like, beat on the younger apes and gets to decide who gets to mate with what females. Well, what happened is they were setting this tribe of ape, or not apes, baboons, um, and monitoring the negative health effects that it had on males that were on low on the totem pole. And as a side note, it showed that it had terrible health effects. They got heart disease, all sorts of things, because of the stress of being on the bottom of a social structure. There was increased stress hormones mm-hmm. for the people on the lower end and yes. higher stre- uh, less stress hormones in, to yeah, the alpha males. exactly. Yeah. And what happened is, by a freak accident... This particular group, um, all of the really um, violent alpha males got t- tuberculosis from some like bad food they ate. Because and, they got access to the food first. Yeah, and, and they all died off. What happened was the culture of that group completely did a 180. They went from being this nasty group where everyone just hits each other and everyone's stressed out to sitting around grooming and not ever getting in fights and having peaceful interactions rather than competitive and violent interactions. And then over the years, and the article I was looking at was 2004, so I mean, who knows what's happened since then. But that, that structure maintained that change for 20 years afterwards. Because when younger, 
younger apes that, or I keep saying apes, younger baboons came into the male baboons came into the tribe. The the female said, "No, you can't have sex with us unless you're nice. We're nice in this group." I think we don't usually have matriarchies because the problem with the patriarchy is we have a it's called sexually dimorphic species where the men and the female have different bodies. Men are stronger physically than women. So when you have a patriarchy, it turns into whatever the culture decides is a strong man is at the top. A matriarchy is inherently not going to look the same because you're choosing who's in charge, not by who's the physically strongest. What, it's, it's being chosen by other determinations. What, what I would suggest, um, and I could be wrong, I don't know the research has been done, the patriarchies tend to be dominator cultures. That's what I said, dominator cultures where they fight for that, that dominance hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I the, think the, that the question is: If you put women in charge, will it eliminate dominance hierarchies? And I don't think anybody's ever defined that. I don't think there's been a, enough research to show that. I mean, we, there we, have not we, been any viable matriarchies, right? Right. And and because and, of patriarchy. Well, because apes are inherently compared to other animals, we're bullies. Apes are the the big apes hit the little apes. And you can look at it in different species of monkeys, ones that are have lower sexual dimorphism, meaning that the male and female of the species look very similar. Humans have very high sexual dimorphism. Um, anyway, when they look more similar, they have egalitarian cultures, like howler monkeys, where a male and a female will pick a territory and defend it together. It is, you know, I mean, I mean... So you're saying you want all men to be women now and women to be men? Yeah. <laughs> I'm all about diversity. I don't know. <laughs> that, that study is uh, Dr. Robert Sapolsky from Stanford. And that was a, that's a great story. I love that story with the bonobos. Yeah, thank you. Go ahead. I think when we're um, taught that within our little organization, we only have two in the team. That, and, you know, in the Mormon culture, that would be a male and a female. You've already decided ahead of time who is going to be um, in charge of this situation. And I think that that's detrimental to to the entire organization because um, from a standpoint of the female, we take no responsibility. Um, So as much as we do for our family, any failings or us not making it would be his problem in the bigger scheme because he's told that he's to lead and guide and take everybody to the to the next level. Yeah, and And he could uh, be a total Yahoo. Like who knows? Absolutely. Not that my husband is <laughs> funny, but um, but that is true, and and I and I felt that personally, where it you kind of can renege on some of your responsibility because it's not up to you in the end, you know. It's yeah, you're just the lesser in the two. In a bigger organization, you've already eliminated half of your people when you say the male has to be dominant, like the previous lady said. Right, you're, you're losing a lot from getting rid of some of those. It's, um, a, it's a patently ridiculous system. I think we're all in agreement. Thing? Go ahead. Thanks. Uh, for me, one of the problems that I have when we discuss issues of race and gender and class is we make the mistake of assuming that these problems exist independently of each other. Hmm. So this whole time we've been talking a lot about, you know, just male and female, but how does 
I wonder if you guys could talk about how race and class fit into the patriarchy. Well, as race well. and class, and I'm going to put that aside for a second because where I wanted to go next was, and I meant I, I alluded to this in the beginning that a lot of the stu- a lot of the the thinking in feminism and 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 gender studies has been shaped recently by in, in, intersexed people, transgender people, because a lot of the writing, even traditional feminist writing, has been on this binary. That we have men and we have women and men do this and, you know, men form hierarchies and men are violent and women are nurturers and all this kind of bullshit that gets flapped around. But what we're, we're finding more and more is that you have, you have sexual orientation, you have gender identity, you have the, the gender that you're, 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 um, what about I think you're you're Performing? your pheno, your phenotype. Oh, you're so you you generally have those three things: your your actual physical sex, your gender, and then you know your your and and these things can all line up in different ways. We start studying these intersex groups. We're finding more and more out about that a lot of these stereotypes that we have are not exactly true. And I know from business studies showing that 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 women who are, have been socialized now in this sort of traditionally male quote unquote um like business environment tend to act in ways that are very um typical for these alpha males. So and we so, call that gender performance, which means gender is a construction. Like I said, like masculine traits, that's a boy thing. Feminine traits is a girl thing. And you perform your gender. Even if you don't feel that biologically, um, boys know how to perform their gender from a young age. You know, we're tough. We like bugs. We like to get dirty. And girls like princesses. And that's gender performance. Go ahead. Yeah, I just had a couple of statements and I wanted to get your guys' feedback on it. Um, I'm really interested in the conversation because of actually the ordained women movement and I've been following it because part of me hopes you fail because um, uh, it, it will diminish the church's uh, popularity over time. I mean, there'll be more and more people who won't want to participate in something that that um, becomes more obvious over time that it is restricted to a whole class of people. So, uh, But uh, the other part of me too, I can see a, a lot of really good because as a male, I didn't realize how crappy I had been treated until after I left. It took me probably six months to a year before I started looking back and listening to podcasts or talking to other people. And I was really um, surprised and upset a little bit at just what I kind of uh, dealt with as a male in the church, but also... Um, uh, what I did as a as a male in the church because of, you know how I was taught, so I'd like to see that change. I think the women um, uh, getting more involved with the leadership and stuff would would cause that to, uh, that change, and so I'm pretty excited about that side. But the the other thing was um, as an example of a women's organization. I know the Relief Society and other are are in the church and in the culture of the church, but is it a big enough and long enough organization to do any analysis whatsoever of um, you know, how a women's organization can either succeed or be different or whatever. Well, the Relief Society used to be independent, and they did all sorts of kick-ass things when they, when they yeah, were. They I mean, I, they've I, done I, a lot less since they've not been It's a great right? study of taking an organization that did lots of things and then taking this this matriarchal organization, put it under the patriarchy, and it goes to shit. Um, but I will say, so you had someone like Eliza R. Snow, who I guess you could consider her a matriarch, and you saw her doing some of the similar things. She would dress really extravagantly and spend a lot of money on her clothes, and then she would go and tell the women, like, don't be vain, and if you're wearing too much on your clothes, then you're evil. So... So it was exactly kind of the same things that we're seeing because the system, listen, the church is not just a patriarchy. It's a hierarchy. It's a curiarchy. This is a great segue into the rest of the podcast. Can I, can I address the race thing really quick though? Please, please. Because I think 
so the term that we use in feminist theory is called intersectionality. And that is so important when we're talking about privilege theory. Privilege theory pisses everybody off, especially white people, especially white male people, because it, it makes it how they hear it. I assume is that, that I say, your life is so much better than my life. And that is not what privilege theory means. What privilege theory means is as, Let's say as a white male, you in in our society currently, you are on top of the food chain. Even but that's organized into its own hierarchy. Underneath you is probably a white woman. And then you have um you know, like people of color. And if you picture it as a big giant racetrack and we're all running around the racetrack, people have different obstacles. That's privileged theory. So if you are a gay black man, um, you're gonna have black and gay being an obstacle to maybe getting a job or maybe having, you know, not being profiled on the street. If you are a disabled black lesbian woman, you have a lot more obstacles to jump over than I would. So that's how intersectionality comes in. And that's absolutely prevalent in the church. We do not see people of color in the higher uh, structures, although women, they just appointed some international... uh, In the Relief Society. Yeah, women for regional... I can't remember what they're called, but they are women of color. So, the only thing I'll, I agree with everything you say, but I will push back on one thing. Um, when you're talking about privilege, you're talking about unequal distribution of resources across populations. Yes, and it's not the people in privilege who get upset by it. It's the 99% movement. The 1% doesn't sit around and complain. White males don't complain about privilege. It's people who have an uneven distribution of resources who complain about it. I, well, I would say some white male complaint. Yeah, I, I got defensive it. when I when I heard race theory. Someone called me racist. We were talking about Beyonce's hair of all things, and uh, people are like, uh, as a white woman, you can't really weigh into this discussion. And I was like, whatever. I have opinions about Beyonce's hair, you know. And it was really embarrassing and painful for me because they were saying like, you you can't know what it's like. And that was a really hard lesson for me to learn because I was I got defensive. I was like, no, I can. I can talk about her hair, all right? Because I know what it's like to have hair. This is Lindsay Nye's chief error. I, I, I completely acknowledge that this world is an unfair, unevenly distributed place. Um, but the uh, a lot of the reaction to it, I like I'm completely against the 99% movement. I think it's complete baloney. And Listen, this is an unfair world, and sitting around complaining about it all the time doesn't serve anybody any good. And the idea that... It doesn't, it's not a victim mentality, but what it does is it helps us be mindful when we make decisions that deal with other people's lives. It's a reverse lives. victim mentality that takes into account that says, if you are higher up on the... the it, it, there, there's this, this meme that says, the higher you up are on the privileged scale, the less you understand about the underprivileged, which they've not made that case at all. They've never made a case at all saying that if I, you know, you're, you're right. If you say I'm, I'm an overweight black gay male in Kenya, then I'm way down on the privilege scale. But the, the assumption they say is that, that that individual understands what being a, you know, privileged white blue blood in New Hampshire has more than the reverse case, which I've never seen any reasonable argument to suggest why privilege is an inverse of understanding and empathy. Do we want to keep going on privilege? No, let's move on, please. (laughs) Lindsay and I, I I swear to God, Lindsay and I argue about this at least once a week. At least. Seriously, we do, don't we? We do. It's fun. And I I say we're all... What I would say is that everybody I see involved in the discussion are, are 
people who are born in the United States with, you know, it's like, it's, and this is my thing about the 99% movement. You really had like the, the, the 5% like complaining about the 1% because when you take all 7 billion people, you know, it's like when you bring a, like an orphan from Calcutta into the discussion, then I'll start listening. But otherwise it just sounds like a bunch of privileged people pointing They're fingers at each other. You're privileged. You're privileged. It's my privilege to say that. All right. So, so I think we've, we've hit on some good issues here and we've talked about patriarchy and we start poking at the limits of it a little bit. And what I want to do is I want to now talk about other governing structures of the church. Let's talk about oligarchy. Oligarchy is a great concept. And what I think is funny is the news media only uses it in reference to the Russians. Has anybody else noticed this? They always say the oligarchs as if there's no oligarchs in the United States. Um, the, the oligarchy is everywhere. Um, it's, it's basically, I mean, at the, the highest level, oligarchy is a concept that you have a power structure where power is effectively rests in just a tiny or a small percentage of the population. And you might just say, whoa, what, what are you talking about? You're not saying anything distinctive, right? Um, we're, yeah, we're really not because oligarchies are all over the place and you are hard pressed to find um, a company or an organization, or a nonprofit, or anything where power is not concentrated in the hands of the few. Where oligarchy becomes interesting is to ask the question, how and why do the people who have the power have the power? So the church itself, as we start talking about with power, when I, when I started talking about it, we have one in 300 who holds power over wards and one in 3,000 who holds power over stakes. And then you start talking about a handful of people till when this multi-million member organization effectively the power, um, of the first presidency trumps everything, um, in, in ways that we've seen in church history where you have three people who really hold an enormous amount of power. And have you heard, I'm sure everyone has heard, because I remember hearing like, the church is so lucky because our governance structure is perfect. Like we just don't, we don't, we're not ruled by a king. We have a whole quorum of people looking out for us. Did you guys hear that? Do you remember that kind of rhetoric? Yes, yeah, absolutely. The, the, yeah, the church is perfect. The structure is perfect. The only reason it doesn't work is because people screw it up, but not, not, not God, not, not, nor the structure. So, olig- usually not the prophets. Oligarchies tend to be, um, the, 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 the elements that put people into power tend to be royalty, birthright, right? Wealth, family ties. We'll talk about nepotism a little bit more. Education, corporate training, like, like I realize in my company, I work for a Fortune 50 company and I don't care how I perform, but the, the fact that I didn't go to, to a top tier school just knocks me out of it. I mean, there, there, there's certain, as you start looking, there's certain levels in companies. If you didn't go to some schools, you're done for. You're not going to make it. You're not going to get there. Um, and, and so you have, you have power that's controlled by a few. So when we talk about patriarchy, it's true. And we talk about all these negative elements. These are absolutely right. But I think the, one of the biggest problems is we start taking all these, um, governance abuses that, that happen in the church and, and the, the nature of the way the church runs itself and attribute it to the patriarchy, I think unrightfully. So the patriarchy is a gatekeeper absolutely to, to this, um, to this, um, power structure. But I think things like family ties and wealth and 
have much more influence than that masculine element. The problem is there's no there's no counter examples because they're all men. I, I actually agree with you. Patriarchy is used. You as say that too, like that's, that's too a, broad of a term. It it, it is. It and it, the church so is more than just this, a patriarchy. The same problems would exist if they were all women. If they were rich, if they, you know, all the other the same problems. Do, when, when we talk about I like in, so. in in group and and um, um, family ties, for example, the that has absolutely been the case with with the female structure in the church. The the, the small female governance structure, they have the same ties and relationships, and they're put in place under the same structure. And we see the exact same problems with with with, with the women. Now there is an argument to be made that uh, people like Eliza Snow acting as an oppressive matriarch, if you will, is only doing so because she's still under the influence of 19th century America, which is very patriarchal and the patriarchal church. Like, but I, I actually agree with you. I think that if women were in, in charge, they would act similar ways because I think it's the power dynamic that's the problem. But unfortunately, we don't know. I mean, we don't have any evidence. Because uh, this is one of my chief um, complaints about things like the, the ordained women movement. It, it's, and it, well, my number one complaint is it's all bullshit. So, um, but the, but underneath that, what, there's an assumption that women, and I, th- I think this is completely unfair and unwarranted, that women are more enlightened and that women will make better governance. And, and the problem is when you look at when we've had women who actually govern things in the church, they fall right in line. And, and what's, what's interesting is a lot of the feminist yeah, thinkers can't. hate Sherry Do, right? But the minute the church starts ordaining women, it'll be a bunch of Sherry Do's. Go ahead. Possibly, but but I don't I don't think that there's any way that we know because even though the, there are a few women in leadership in the church, they're so few compared to the men. Of course, they're going to comply. If it was a little more equal, well, well, that you may not have that. I think that's dynamic. an interesting point, but we do know. Plus, if they don't comply, they're out. Well, so what happens tomorrow if ordain if the church reverses? What happens tomorrow? Who picks? The first Mormon bishops, first we female bishops. We need voting. We need voting all the way along. Ah, see, see, who so, was it? So this is this is the thing: is is we, if if we suddenly have the ordained women movement, how long till parity is achieved? There are more Hispanics. Yeah, but you're assuming that ordained women gets rid of all the men, though. Where I'm assuming no, no, it I'm just assu- kind of evens it out. I'm assuming it doesn't at all. As a matter of fact, the men in charge right now will start picking women who hold the same political. It, okay, back up. It doesn't fix. Women being ordained is like the teeny tiny start. It does. It won't fix anything. I would say it's a reversal. If the church tomorrow were to How start, how can it ordained, be a reversal? Because if you're a man in charge, who are you going to pick? What's that? What's that? Well, crazy, it'll be the same thing. Then that woman? would be a patriarchy. Well, He's what's, picking what's her name women down there in to... Saratoga Springs. Mia Love. Mia Love. That's who. That's the first line of women that are going to get ordained. It's all the fucking nutballs. It's, but that's They're not. That's not out. egalitarianism. Well, see, now you're now you're changing the rules. Yeah, but no, it's no, a no. start. It's a start. It, that's, it's still safer it's to have more women in the governance structure. Don't period. get me wrong. Whether they're it's crazy better. or not. Had to have more women in the governance structure would be better. There you go. But, but all you I'm can saying, start with is in what's a little better and then go to somewhere better and somewhere better. It would reverse, though, because the same guys who are running the church would be the guys who pick that front line of, of women. Right, but then we'd have the same situation we have now with the media, and and eventually they start complying. There right? are more eventually. Uh, there are more Hispanic Mormons today than there are whites. How are they representing the quorum of the the, the twelve? You're exactly right. The, they're not. How many years bad. would it take to cheat parity in the quorum of twelve? 
Community of Christ. Community of Christ ordains women. They lose a third of their congregation. It about busted their church in half. About? They're okay, limping along. But that's what's awesome about it. Honestly. No, no, no. Seriously. The church needs to have its paradigm broken because it's broken. And to, to ordain women would have to. It would have to break the church. So, so this is my chief complaint. I'll, I'll, I'll lay it out against ordained women. They're, they're, they're not being straight up. They do not, and if you push on them at all, they do not w- want women ordained in the church. They want to change the fucking church. They want, they say, we want a more egalitarian. We want, we want to put women in so they can change the whole thing around. You're not asking to just get the priesthood. You're saying, we want to change the whole game. They want the which, leadership, which I think is right because the game is wrong, but they're not representing it that way. They're not saying, not only do we want women to have the priesthood, we want to change the whole, the oh, whole thing. I think there are some women that want to enact priesthood. Well, don't they say in ordained women that, that, Part of the part of their concern is that it's the leadership sh- leadership structure that they're left out of. I mean, they say that, mm-hmm. but they I, don't I, it's just not, want the priesthood; they want to participate in the structure. Uh, and once again, I agree with every every change they want to make in the church. But I, I I just to me, you should play play everybody straight. Go ahead. Um, so I mean, I might be a minority in this, but like the the idea of the structure behind the church and how it's governed and how this ordained women will change it. It's very interesting, but it's missing like the heart of I think spiritual journey, which is what a religion and a structure like that is claiming to to do. And I think being ordained with spiritual powers and being connected to divinity is is simply a part of a spiritual journey that should be facilitated if it's going to be claiming to enlighten and enrich human experience and and, and give these things to, to individuals and. Having it not give that experience to to women, I mean, I think there's lots of complications you brought up with the structure and the government, but the heart of spirituality and religion should be that spiritual quest of the individual soul. And I think women clearly have souls, and they should be, <laughs> that should be recognized, and wow. divinity should be given. So, so John, you're saying because you, need- you don't believe in it, doesn't, like, if you did believe in it, remember what you're told. How many talks have you men have about how the priesthood changes you and makes you a better person? Women want access to that opportunity as well. So I agree with what you're saying. That's the heart so of the Lindsay, community movement. of Christ. They separate leadership from priesthood, right? I mean, yes, it doesn't. It's not tied together. So I would just like to pipe in for just a second on having the right people, which is really the ordained women movement. They want women in, but then you just made the argument, we've got to have the right in, and John made this argument too. My thing that I'd look at is we have an example of where this does not work. Look at the state legislature in Utah. It is full of the exact kind of people that run it exactly they want to do. And even though we have a two-party system, quote, we cannot get past them as the ruling party because they have enough influence to make sure the people who follow them up are the same type of people that they were. So it's more than just having an avenue of having someone else different there. You've got to have an avenue to actually change anything fundamentally with how the organization's well, culture is. I, and that's I, what you're saying, right? Right. Gender, gender in the state legislature, in the Utah state legislature, is not a predictor of their position. And, and to go back to our form, we're talking about oligarchy. What I'm basically saying is that the church is an oligarchy. And if you ordain women, it's still a fucking oligarchy. It's not because the the other elements on how people get into power, um, on inheritance and being in the right families and that sort of stuff, are going to 
stay in place. Now, this is a good chance. I kind of skipped through. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the doctrinal underpinnings. And this, this really goes with oligarchy and kind of helps us understand what we're talking about. Because remember, the, 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 the question of oligarchy is who gets the power and why? How do we justify in a society that these, this small group of people has a right to lead everybody else? Um, and we, we give it this mask, this mask of the priesthood, quote unquote. But that's, to me, that's a shell game because they give every man the priesthood and they say, go to your home teaching. That's not, that doesn't have anything to do with the governance of the church. So Mormonism has a strong predestination doctrine. And it doesn't have to, like, for the Calvinists, it, it had to do with just how you were created. God made you that way. The Mormons bring into this this argument of preexistence. I was going to look it up in Terrell Givens' books, but they put me to sleep. He actually has a great um, argument about this. It's still there. The predestination argument was used routinely to justify denying temple rights to African Americans, right? I, I, I don't like people say denying the priesthood because we wouldn't let um, African American women into the temple. So I think that's an oversimplification. So, so they would say, well, we don't know what people did in the preexistence. You could have been a complete asshole in the preexistence. So therefore you deserve to be an orphan in Calcutta. Um, and, and, and this argument is still around and it exists in the Pearl of Great Price. It's, it's laid out and say there were great spirits before and people organized themselves into meritorious, um, distinction. And, and people who became prophets were that way because they were more meritorious in the pre-existence. And this underpins the, the structure because if you point out to a faithful thinking Mormon and you say, look, President Hinckley's son was made a 70 while he was sitting in office. Given the number of stake presidents in the church and just rating their performance, what's the statistical probability that the son of the prophet would hit that office. It's it's got to be one in ten thousand, one in maybe a thousand at best. But it happens over and over and over again. And if you start looking at the genealogy of these guys, they're 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 intermarried, and they they have been for a long time, and 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 they're they're distantly related. And you can start drawing out these genealogies. I've tried it; it just gets really boring very quickly. Well, they totally self-select. That's the biggest problem, right? I mean, there's no there's no way to break into that hierarchy, that sphere, because they choose each other. They just keep choosing each other. Absolutely. So there, there is something called, um, I looked it up and I always forget, it's, it's, it's a, acquired, I think it's called acquired social narcissism. Acquired, um, I, I don't know. It, but it's, it's, it's a theory that says people who get into positions of power, think Michael Jackson, they get surrounded by people all the time who just tell them their shit doesn't stink. And what happens is they get more and more isolated from the world. And they're always surrounded by yes men. And they, they start suffering from a psychological disorder where they acquire this narcissistic worldview. This happens to CEOs and it happens to movie stars. And, and it happens to a lot of famous people because they get systematically removed from the world. Imagine how miserable it would be in the state of Utah to be a member of the Quorum of the Twelve. Awful. What, what can you do? I mean, uh, people post, I see on Facebook, like, uh, there was somebody who saw, like, um, Uchtdorf, the silver fox, in uh, Costco, like, buying some pants. And it, it generated a great big, uh, the guy was just buying a fucking pair of trousers. And it generated this huge, like, um, like, if these guys go, you know, 
when when I was a missionary, we were instructed in my mission to wear our whites, wear our white shirts and tags on P Day. And we'd go to the mall to buy socks. And I was in Southern California and people would come and say, Elder, should you really be um in the Mervins? Um shouldn't and they would they would actually say so we stopped wearing them just so we wouldn't like give the church a bad name because we bought socks and porn and stuff so we wanted to keep that clear um, it would be hard to be a member of the 12 and you would be surrounded by people all the time who are telling you that everything you say is right there's a lot of ex-mormons who say oh they've got to know they've got to know it's 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 fake they don't sit and read mormon think all day long they're surrounded by lackeys who are all day long telling them oh you're the best you're the but when you think they'd start trying to even out there understanding a little bit, or you just don't even think they go there. What incentive but, do they have? That's, that's, that's true. The, back to it being hard, though. It's hard, thing. but the power part of it, the ego trip part of it, I would say for most of them probably completely outweighs that it kind of sucks to go to Costco and have people notice what you're buying. I, I've told this story before, but my, my mom, um, for a few years in her stake, was the designated authority luncheon woman. So when a 70 or whatever would come in for state conference, she was the, her calling was to make the lunch for these guys. And she was instructed, I swear to God, do not talk to these people. Do not say anything unless you're approached. Don't look at them. Don't just stand back like you're the fucking help. Right. And, and <laughs> don't look in my eyes. Don't look in my <laughs> eyes. <laughs> And 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 be, be, because if you think about it, these guys could go through the whole thing and not even have anybody say anything to them. So so the the point I'm going. So you're at, saying they have this horrible sad life? What? No, okay. So in power theory, when you study power structures, this is the language of power. It's it's almost inevitable in any sort of hierarchy. You become cloistered. You become yes. You start speaking a different language. We call it the language of power. And so this is a problem with uh, like any sort of um, movement in the church that wish it, wishes to petition to the leader. If I were to sit down with the Quorum of the Twelve, I have to speak their language, which is now a language of power, because they do not know my language, my language of petitioning, my language of um, egalitarianism. That is not the language they speak. I know what? this is kind of complicated, but they are not in a position to even have a dialogue because of the position that they're in. I agree. And it, there's been there's been interviews in the last couple of years where the mainstream press has interviewed with cameras on Jeffrey R. Holland and Dowan Oaks. And if you watch those interviews, you can see how agitated those guys are because this outside Gentile reporter is not addressing them the way they're used to being addressed. And they are, they they are challenged. They are thrown off by it completely. And 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 what the Oaks is fascinating. This is not a guy who just fell off the turnip truck. He used to be the Supreme Court Justice of Utah. And it shows in just a few years, in 20 years, how much he's descended into this hierarchy bubble. Now, now, where, where, where are we going with this doctrine? So you have the doctrine that's in place that God will put the choice spirits where he needs them. So when you look at President Hinckley's son, I can't remember his name. Adolf, what, Rudolph, what, I don't know, what, whatever it was, when you put his son there, well, God could put him wherever he was. So, so these guys are cloistered and isolated, and they literally only know 10 women. So that's why it's Sherry Dew and those people, because it has to be the ones they've already met. So, so they, 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 they can only pick people they have in place. So, or they, they know, they only people they run into. They're not hanging out at City Creek 
like at the J Crew. So, so where do they meet people? Well, it's in this tight bubble. So you have this doctrinal underpinning of God putting people in front of you. Like if I met you, it's because God put you there. If you were born to President Hinckley, it's because God, you were a choice and elect spirit. So, so this is the argument that was used after you put this in place of the divine right of kings. Let's talk a little bit about that. The argument went this way. Um, um, throughout European history, they didn't necessarily say that God chose the king because that was obviously not the case. But they would say, well, God can kill anybody he wants anytime. So if I go slay the old king and become the new king, well, the fact that God hasn't struck me dead is proof positive that God wants me to be the king. This is a warped way of thinking that pollutes the way the church leaders um, um, go. And you can see this come out all the time because they believe that God put them in place and they met the right people to get into office and that God wants them to rule the church. And even if they don't believe, this is where the ex-Mormons get, get, when they say, well, they have to know. They have to know Jesus isn't telling them things. No, they believe that if Jesus wanted them to do something different, Jesus would appear and tell them. The fact that Jesus has never appeared to them is validation to them that they're doing everything correctly. It's fucked up and it's weird, but it keeps them in office and it keeps them moving forward. It's insanity, but it comes out in these letters. But you also have, I mean, if you were surrounded by fans, and let's, let's be clear, a lot of Mormons are fans of the apostles. There's some serious misplaced adoration there, especially doctrinally and theologically. Well, it happens at every level. I can just speak from the bishop level, but we were nobodies in our ward until, because it was a ward full of temple presidents and mission presidents, and we were just, you know, low life. And the minute he was called to be bishop. Everybody wanted to know his opinion. Everybody, you know, it, it, it starts at the bishop and, and it's a serious ego trip. And that's why I'm saying the benefits kind of outweigh the negatives. Yeah, there's negatives to the leadership or whatever, but that whole adoration thing, it's not so bad. And, and well, they'll tell that, you. But they're telling you, you're helping me. I mean, even, I mean, there was a terrible story of church abuse. There, the exponent, which is a feminist blog, is doing a series on discipline in the church. And there's this terrible story that was collected by Janice Allred, which is what she got excommunicated for. Um, about a, like a 70, 72 year old woman went into the bishopric. She was on a high council court of love, sobbing and shaking. They said she was so old, she was shaking. And she confessed of being molested 60 years ago. And, uh, you know, they, this guy was on the council. The guy that reported the story was like, guys, we can't punish her. We can't disfellowship her. And they disfellowshipped her. Oh. And she was so relieved. She held them and said, thank you. Because she'd been carrying that burden forever, right? If you're in that position and you have a woman doing that, you're like, I just helped her. I just relieved her of that huge burden. That's very validating. She was molested because she was molested she and she's a woman. <laughs> because, because don't try to lead too much logic church, into it. <laughs> if you want to read an interesting and terrifying um, topic, go to the exponent, read their two-part series about church discipline. The stories are horrifying, horrifying. So again, whether it were men or female, men or women that were at the top, the most insidious thing that when you're talking about with this discipline, it's this adoration where does it come from there's adoration for the apostles there's adoration for your bishop we're taught that somehow that now you are supposed to 
revere this person despite any personal feelings you might have, beside, despite anything, any alarm bells going off. And they have to revere to themselves. To yourself. You they know, revere to the to position themselves. So. Yeah. And, and the and company totally I, you know, I work right. for, there's a lot of female executives, and they're dicks just like the men are, equally so, maybe less so, but pretty close. I mean, they, it, they get into that status of power, and they start having the trappings of power. Go ahead. So you're painting a really good picture of the cycle that feeds itself, where you have an oligarchy who choose the next oligarchy, and everyone's put in the same place, the power feeds itself. One thing that I wanted to add is, one of the great drivers of this is all of these men and individuals have been told as they're called that this is God's will. Right. And so the more powerful experiences when you're told, regardless of where you come from, or you're a powerful family, God wants this. And then as you see the cycle continue, it would be very easy, in my opinion, to start believing God set this whole thing up. Like the cycle just keeps going and going and going. These dynastic families will cycle on into eternity. And even if we give the women priesthood, they're going to be taken from the same pool. Yeah. Well, there's there's two systems. This now let's go into our next thing: meritocracy. Meritocracy is insidious. And and when you first hear it, you're like, well, yeah, that's how it should be, right? The meritocracy is just that whoever has the most merit gets the office, right? And both in the United States and in the church, we have two competing systems. We have this oligarchy that gets in place based on family ties and those family relationships like we've been outlining. But then you have this other set that we, we've talked about before in the podcast. The church does monitor people and, and prompt them and promote them. And, and, and what it does is it, um, it takes people and it starts putting them in office. They, they do actually ask you when they're talking to you about being bishop what your financial situation is. Like, it's one of the very first questions they ask. They do. And for stake presidents and mission presidents, the same thing happens. And then we, we know that the church has systems to analyze and watch people. And then they move people up. If you're a good bishop, you become a stake president. Good stake president, you become a mission president. You do well as a mission president. Then you move on to the next level. How so do you, they determine you're a good bishop? Like, how many people get temple recommends while you're the, in? Or I'm, just the church people has don't its complain own evaluation criteria. I, I, I don't know. But I know as a clerk, we report on the statistics of headcount and I mean, let's be clear. It's about tithing receipts, right? Yeah. Um, so. So again, then, if you're in a wealthy ward, you're well, they, looking good. They do good. it as percentages, right? Oh, they want okay. to see. They want to see you get a better per- percentage. <laughs> um, so, but 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 a meritocracy. The problem with a meritocracy is you have to ask the question: Well, what is the meritorious method of promotion? Because it oftentimes takes the organization and builds on itself its own sort of perverted. Um, elements. So, for example, a company might start promoting people who, like I've talked about, been to the right schools or been to the right training or, or gone through a certain way. And then what happens is that organization oftentimes becomes sick because the marketplace changes, but the organization itself doesn't adapt because they've defined merit in the wrong way. Do you think the biggest merit is loyalty? The biggest merit is definitely loyalty. And this is one of the chief arguments that I make for why the the twelve and those people in power um, aren't are, don't doubt their testimonies, because the whole system is based on that on obedience and felity, right? I agree with that. Um, so so meritocracy, we have to ask ourselves what constitutes the merit, and I think you have it absolutely right. It's 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 loyalty and this ability to serve in these offices and willingness to kind of give up your whole life to this loyal cause that they've got. 
Which goes back to my argument about ordained women. When the first women will get into those offices, then they will be bound, they'll be judged on the same level on tithing receipts and obedience to their file leaders. And that's unless it breaks the entire structure of the church, shakes things up. Could, could, but that's more likely to destroy the church. Then you have the the next thing coming. But again, so with the argument against ordained women, so do we just don't do it? I mean, well, yeah. <laughs> you uh, think you, you, you just, think the church is the church and the church population are better off status quo than uh, somebody trying to mix it up? Uh, I mean, let's let's be clear on my opinion. I believe religions are on whole bad, and what we need to do is train people to live their lives and think and be rational without them. Reforming religions, I think, doesn't work. Mm, I'm going to push back on that a little bit. I don't know that it works or that it will succeed, but again, it's a little better. I mean, it's 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 breaking that structure down a little. It's it's introducing a little bit of thinking, maybe into I don't know, pushing people to consider. And you're not going to topple religion overnight. That's not. I mean, I don't think we should kill animals, but I ate chicken nuggets for. Let, well, lunch. Let's be clear. Let's be clear on my opinion again, because this is this is key and something that I take a lot of heat for. I do not believe in toppling religions. I'm not after destroying the church. The only goal that I have in life is to help individuals, basically who've already figured out the church is not true, deprogram themselves and move on to a healthy life. But do you think that ordaining women in the Mormon church would make the church better or worse? I, I, I the, the problem with the question, <laughs> I should go into politics, right? <laughs> Answer the question. The problem with the question, it would make it better by my standard. Okay, but then we ought to give it a try. Is an incrementally better system. Like, like, like let's say, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm trying to not fall into cliches here. This is why I'm a, so, 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 so let's say your local meth dealer or your local cocaine dealer starts cutting their cocaine with 5% baking powder. Is that better? Well, technically it is, but it doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't, it, the problem is, is the addiction and the supplier networks and all that kind of stuff. Or let's say, I mean, let's say we find out that the, that the methamphetamine dealers through the greater Phoenix are all men. That's a patriarchy, goddammit. So we go and we say, we make sure that half of the methamphetamine dealers are women. Is that better? Well, from an abstract feminist point of view, it is. But I would say, fuck the methamphetamine dealers. We don't want them at all. So when people say to me, is it better if the church has women leaders? Well, yes, but it's you're talking about it. Would it be better if there were more women SS officers? There? Meth, See, I meth, couldn't avoid it. I couldn't avoid it. Meth is not the same as, I mean, it's not gender specific. It doesn't, it doesn't target a certain gender in the same way that the church does. The church harms men and women absolutely but it harms women in an, in an insidious way that it will never harm men. Uh, uh, it, and that's worth, that's worth changing. Absolutely. But, yeah. Go ahead. I just want to say, as my, my wife is you know, a very believing person in the church and stuff like that. She doesn't understand what's going on with me right now. But um, for her, I think, like the ordained women, that whole thing, it is better. Because she is currently a meth addict. And it would be better if... Metaphorically speaking. Metaphorically speaking. Oh, yes. I was like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Sorry. I should have prefaced that. <laughs> Metaphorically speaking, a meth addict. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I would. Wait, what? <laughs> I, I would prefer that. 
because she's not going to be able to get off her metaphorical meth by herself. I would prefer, if she's going to be taking meth, that there were steps taken to make it, to make her life better and to make her happier so that she's not constantly telling me, well, I don't want the priesthood because I wouldn't, I don't want the responsibility and all those, you know, cliche things that women in the church will say that I think is terrible because she's, she is a wonderful, beautiful, intelligent woman and I want her life to be better. And so if we can make her life better within the context of the church that she believes in, I think that's only to the good. Okay. I mean, that's an excellent argument. I, 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 I would buy that. And what I'm getting is that the ordained women movement is like those trucks that pass out needles in Oslo. Oh, God. Right? So, okay. The drugs, I, the I've drugs. got it now. I got it now. No, no, no. Um, parody is, is better. I'm not really against the ordained women per se. It's just outside of my realm of interest. Because I'm not interested in reforming churches. I'm interested in having people themselves awaken so they can go away. And I'm not interested in the first step of awakening. I do not proselyte. I'm only interested in dealing with people once they've arrived there themselves. Go ahead, Randy. Um, I have uh, had a lot of people ask me, like you, why is it you want to tear down religion? And I say, I don't want to tear down religion. I want to tear down the reasons people feel they need to have religion. And that's very different, which is where I'd say, like you, I I really don't care about the ordained women movement because I don't see it as an overall positive. Is it maybe an incremental step in the right direction? Sure. But... It doesn't actually fix any problems when it comes down to it. I but, think it does empower women. Well, that's what I was going to say. I would say, but in as much as I'm for parity in society and for breaking down these these structures that are that are disadvantaged females, I'm I'm for that, right? But I just think it would be disingenuous for me to go petition the church to ordain women when I don't believe they should ordain men. That that's and I struggle with that too. I think I th- and. Lindsay, you talked about it too. Like, who are the people that should show up at the movement? But I guess the feminist in me is winning out. Like, it's better to help women everywhere, wherever that is. Who cares if I don't specifically believe the priesthood means anything or that Yeah, somebody... I feel more comfortable engaging in this action than, I, than, say, helping women in the Congo, which is what I used to do. Because mm-hmm. this is my corner of the world. This is a language and a culture and a people that I understand. And so I feel like it is my right growing up as a Mormon woman to engage in this sort of activism. And I think you guys should do it. Like, I'm not trying to talk you guys. I'm just, it's just not my fight. But the fact that other people are doing it is, is fine. And truthfully, I was debating, sorry, real quick, debating whether or not to go this year until today when the, or last night when I saw the stupid letter. <laughs> it's like, okay, I'm there. So uh, which, which uh, uh, method is actually helping bring more people to you, John? You know, your interest is to help people that have, learned that the church is not true or something, and, and you want to help them transition and deprogram. So is the movement bringing more people to you? Or do you see a lot of women coming out of the church now because they're facing things that they never had to really think about? Maybe they only felt, now there's, now there's words, now there's uh, you know, an image of what feminism means, and, and they're not as afraid of it anymore. Are you seeing more women come out of the church because of this movement? Or would it be like if they went away, would you get more? I'm, I'm, I'm just curious about that. I, I think the number one deconverter of Mormons is the church. Um, they do things like Prop 8 and stuff. Just The best way to get more people out of the church is just tell the church, go, just keep doing, just keep doing what you're doing. 
It's working great. Keep writing letters. Keep writing like these wrote. letters and mm-hmm. stuff. Now, 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 one could easily push on me and say, well, they wrote the letter in response to ordained women. I'd say that's a great point, you know, and, and so, but, but, and, and I'm sure if you sat and talked me long enough, you could convince me that there's really good work being done. I think there is really good work being done, but it's just not my fight. That, that's, that's the main thing. So are you seeing more women, do you think there's more, more women leaving since these different things like pants and ordained women or fewer? Do you have a sense I, for that? I, you know, when I get asked that question, which I do get asked quite a bit, my response is always the same. The bleed rate for the church has always been enormous. The church has always lost tons and tons and tons of people. That what, what's changed is the caliber of people they're, they're, they're losing now. And I don't mean that in terms of like intrinsic value of a human being. I mean the people who would have been in leadership positions, the people who really believe the church really strongly. Bishops First it and, was the riffraff, and now... <laughs> uh, the, the, the church, there's always been people who never really took it very seriously. And if you, if you, I, I've said this before, if you go to Utah, there's three main populations. Well, there's, there's four. There's people who never had anything to do with the church, and then there's believing Mormons, ex-Mormons. And then there's this other group of like, don't give a rat's ass Mormons. And that's by far and away the biggest number. And they don't just don't care. They don't go to church. They don't, you know, they're, they're, they're crowding up the stores and they're, and they, they, they're, they, they need to go back to church so I can go to church. So I can go to my church on Sunday. The ski slopes. I was just going to say, they're so crowded on Sunday. What's that about? Did you hear that? John Larson wants you all to go back to church. Please. (laughs) All right. So let's go on to our our last couple of things. We've talked about meritocracy and and how the church sort of looks for for certain traits. Um, um, Gerontocracy is, I think, an important point and one that's, that's left off. The gerontocracy is basically the idea that, that your organization should be led by elders, right? This is, this is a cliched sort of white view of Indians. We see this all the time. But what it does is it enforces conservatism. You ask why the church is so conservative, because if you put people who are 30 years behind everything, and if you look, the church is consistently 30 years behind. Whatever's going on in society, you know, when was the civil rights movement in its heyday? And when did, when did, um, the, the priesthood rights and temple rights get extended to African Americans. It's because of this gerontocracy, because you have a bunch of old duffers and you have to wait till they die off. They're, the people who are running the church now came of age in the 60s and 70s. They're just behind. And it really marks the way the church approaches things. And these, these ways they have of communicating are common patterns of speech from the 60s. If you go watch the Mad Men and take away the martinis and the sex, that's who's running the church, except they're in Mr. Max suits instead of good-looking ones. <laughs> um, so, plutocracy. Although, Silver Fox and Don Draper, I could um, see that. Yeah. Just kidding. Um, a plutocracy is a, is a pejorative, and it, it, it really means um, a society or system that's dominated by the, a minority of the wealthiest citizens. The problem with democracy and with any governance structure is it tends to concentrate wealth in the hands of a few, and it and almost every system is open for corruption, and some are openly open for corruption. The Supreme Court, the Roberts Court, a few years ago, ruled in the United States, and I, this is the to me this is the worst thing that's happened in the last forty years that money is a form of speech, 
And we've seen the result in the past five or six years. It's been devastating to our democracy. And the problem is it's always easy to have money sway these things and money attracts power. And we have these cases that come out where people who are lifelong general authorities die, like in the case of Joseph F. Smith, and have million-dollar estates that have to be divided up. And you have people like Boyd Packer and, and well, Monson, who are not rich by any, like, sense of a normal um, a peer in, a, in a, an organization, but they have a lot more money than you would expect as a church civil servant. And the question is, where, where does all this money come from? And we're not talking about billions of dollars, but we are talking about millions of dollars, and some of it has been exposed. I do think that that speaks to the language of power. I think we're like going really long, but I'll be fast. So if ordained women would have happened pre-Lorenzo Snow, I think the church leadership would have dealt with it a lot differently because language of power does involve money. I have lived in 10 or 12 different stakes in the time I was um, a faithful member. And I noticed this trend way before I, I left the church. If you look at any given stake because it's geographical, I guarantee you that some wards live in wealthier areas of the stake than others. And if you go look at those wards, you will find a pattern that the leadership positions are disproportionately distributed among the people who have more resources. That the, that the stake president, you know, when I lived in a little farm community, had the biggest farm, biggest dairy operation. That the, the, that the leaders of the church tend to be the richest individuals in, in the area. Um, and if you read, and if you don't believe me, go get Deseret News about this time of year as they start calling the mission presidents. And they put a bio of every mission president and read what's in the bio. Because this tells you when you only have 166 words in this newspaper, what if you're going to say the most important things about a mission president are, and I guarantee it'll give his education and it will give his high leadership positions. It won't say he was the early morning seminary teacher for 20 years. It will say he was a bishop, he was a stake president, he was the heir authority. And it will tell you what he does professionally. He is an executive for Lockheed Martin. So is that happening partially just because they have the means to do it? I mean, are they actually saying we're only going to call rich people or they're just saying this person can more easily go on a mission without it devastating their financial situation? It's an interesting question, but it, 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 the net result is the same. Like right. If you're if you're selecting rich less people, insidious kind of maybe. But if you're selecting rich people because they're rich and then you don't have to pay them. Well, what does that do? That concentrates higher wealth in the hands of the church. Then they actually do kind of pay them, right? Though they reimburse them for they hand everything. Them, they hand them a house and food and cars and yeah. You well, have, not the general authorities, but like a mission president. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of mission president also. That. Same thing goes for general authorities. They they I know they've come out over and over. They get low cost loans and and things like that. But but so what you have is is this is this wealth based system. And let's let's be clear. Uh, and I realize that I've given this talk in other places, but I've never done it on the podcast. Talked about the prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel is live and, and well, which is basically that God rewards the righteous with wealth. And, and so it's an indicator in a stake that this, the wealthiest guy is the stake president. Well, duh, because God, he obviously kept his talents. Isn't that the, the, the metaphor in the Bible? So, so you, you definitely have those. Oh, I did take notes. It's called acquired situational narcissism. That's what it's acquired situation. I'm, I'm looking down my notes. So that's what a, that's what a plutocracy is. So to, to, to round it all out, you, what you have in the church governance is an oligarchy where power is concentrated in the hands of a few that retain that power in a small power bubble. 
There's very few people actually are running the church relative to the general population. The entry gateway into that is the patriarchy, and the patriarchy is used to bully half the population or more. Well, not only that, that the, the the women, but all the beta males, which is which are quite a bit. So the patriarchy is a negative cultural element, but it's only part. And, uh, um, uh, uh, I would say. Um, a minority part of the governance structure because you have these things like nepotism and money and power and people who have cut their teeth in the in the corporate structure of the United States that are bringing those values into the church that really defines this governance structure. And then you have a small group of people who always do this. They'll concentrate wealth and they'll concentrate the means of access. And this is what we've been arguing about with, with um, ordained women. It's not really about ordained women. What I'm saying is these guys have locked down the power structure such that most people can't get in. And that's evident in the fact that there's so many immigrants and um, the folks outside the United States who are just not breaking into the governance structure at all. That should be a warning sign to everybody that there's something else going on there. Agreed. So could we flatten it out? I mean, could it ever work in a ward? This is what I want. Maybe, maybe I would maybe go back to church just because my family goes. If we could have three men, three women, like flat actual council that runs the ward. Of course we can. It's it's done in every single other Protestant church in the world. You've got a pastor, a youth pastor, a, a minister that that a music pastor, and it starts out and you've by you've got the... three or four women that are also interested, and you've got an entire congregation of a thousand people. And does it start out with the congregation by... choosing those people? I mean, the congregation has a say. For the most part, it's self-selecting. Although you know, mm -hmm. you have to have a pastor that's that's uh, whatever uh, ordained. <laughs> but they are hired and fired by the congregation. Usually. Yeah, but they are hired and fired by the congregation. And and you know, especially today in the evangelical movement, what you're seeing is a pastor will start a church, and if he's successful, then he starts another one and another one, and another one, and they call it planting churches, and they will find a pastor for the second church, and the third church, and the fourth church. I'm so it glad we're not like that. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't we that be terrible? We don't have paid ministry, and <laughs> we are, the have the worst. perfect governance structure. Right, right. I'll and add and plus, everybody knows how much these guys make, and that would be terrible. And we're not a business. If we told people how much we were paying our pastors. I was a Unitarian off and on for six years of three different congregations, and Unitarians are very democratic, uh, and it will drive you absolutely crazy. They can't get anything done. Or so. awesome. Well, anything done like what? Like, what do you want them to do? So, for example, you might have a budget for the, um, let's say, the, 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 the coffee budget that's a, a, a hundred, um, $100 a month. But the congregation will vote that they're going to spend $4,000 because they want to get gluten-free muffins there, too. And you say, we don't have fucking $4,000. And they say, we don't care. And it's just, So you have to have one person that gets the say. I'm, I, I, I mean... I, I'm an MBA, right? So I'm a business slated guy. I think hierarchies are there for a reason because organizations that are ego are, are inefficient. And the problem with democracy, as we see going on right now and we see going on the last 10 years, is what the general will of the people is, the general will of the politicians, and what can actually be funded are two different things. So the church works so well, to Lindsay's point, because it's highly efficient. And when you take that efficiency out, you can get, you can get problems. Works well, depending what you say 
Is it fishing? Is, well, is success. I mean, they're successful depending how you define that. And this goes to a point I was making right at the beginning. What is merit? What is works? What is the point of the organization? And we talk about the organizing structure of the church. The real interesting thing in all this to ask yourself is why is it organized this way? It's organized this way because it's doing what it wants, which is it's growth oriented and it's concentration of power oriented. It's after the pattern of heaven. Does anybody, well, this, we need to end, but do you know how, when did it become how it is? Like, where does it say in the letter that came out today, you know, it's doctrine that women don't hold the priesthood. It, it was a revelation, the structure of the church. The, I was going to go into that. It's a great question. Joseph Smith bumbled around with several different egalitarian systems. And they all failed miserably. Then Brigham Young... For various reasons that weren't egalitarian, if you will. <laughs> um, yeah. And... Um, you got to admire the guy on some levels. Um, but but Brigham, Brigham, Young, Brigham Young was doing a planned economy. I actually, I'll, I'll confess this, I was wearing, um, I, I have a, because I like the design, I have a red t-shirt that says CCCP, and has the, the um, sickle, I was wearing it, I was wearing it today, then I was listening to the news and I thought, mm, not good, not today. I'm so, going to turn you into to the government. Brigham Young started a planned economy. Classic planned economy. You guys go down here and you're going to farm grapes. And you guys go down here. And and they crossed over into a very fiscally oriented, business oriented structure. And the modern structure of the church grew out of that governance of the Utah Territory. More so than any doctrinal element that, that, that Joseph Smith came out. And Brigham Young, of course, he wasn't a theologian. It was about the practicalities of running a corporation um, the same way the railroads were being run at the time. But it was still a theocratic democracy in air quotes. And now it's just written in the handbook somewhere or something. It's I mean, just, like there's it's just no, evolved. yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, hopefully that gives people a better understanding of um, the, the, the way the church runs and, and a lot of the questions as to why and, and these, these power dynamics. There's great books out there that have been written. There's a lot to still be discovered. If the, you stayed awake for this whole thing. Yeah, and uh, for sure. And Lindsay's wrong about several things that we showed tonight. <laughs> um, but, Should I tell you what I tell people on the internet lately? This is, this is when I know that I've been run down. I say... Go read a book, okay? That's it, yeah. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. Um, as always, the discussion continues over at the website. Um, this podcast is not free, um, and if you enjoy it, uh, we have a subscription, which is $12 a year. $12. That's like one burrito at the, at the Cafe Rio. This is like a delicious burrito to your ears. And I'll, I'll say this. If everybody who listened subscribed to $12 a year... I could quit my day job. <gasps> it's it. not going to happen because our conversion rate is about 2%. But Do it, uh, and then he can sit all day and eat burritos in the studio. So um, consider consider giving. And, and the discussion continues over at the website. You can join our Facebook group and everything else. Um, guys, thanks a lot. Thanks to the audience for all our participation, and thanks to you.